Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about Rudolph, the audio commentary soundtrack. Since Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is a 51-plus minute show without commercials in the original cut that's available on DVD today, I'm going to jump right in and start this show without a whole lot of introduction, and I'll get into some of the introductory materials and some of the explanations for my, my thought to do this particular topic for my first-ever Christmas-focused inappropriate conversation as we get into the show. So the idea is to queue up a copy of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer on DVD, VHS, DVR, what have you, and play along, because this is literally going to be a running audio commentary. I've mentioned before that I'm a big fan of audio commentary soundtracks, and most of those are too long to do in an inappropriate conversations format. But Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is almost the perfect length if I control the amount of things I say at the end of the show about the different drummer. So if you've got Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer queued up at the beginning, where the first scenes will be uh, images of a, of a major snowstorm, we'll count down from three, two, one, and talk our way through the Christmas animated classic, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Three, two, one, go. Okay, I'm just now seeing the scenes of the snowfall, and... Uh, people pushing cars around and and something that I think one day in the future is going to be massively confusing for people. The uh, scroll through images of major newspaper headlines with huge, uh, you know, giant typeface, foul weather may postpone Christmas and other sort of images like that. Not only in the modern era do you rarely see newspapers go to the 96 and more than 100 point type in their images. But you also, at some point, we're not going to understand what newspapers even have to say. Uh, this concept of, of a newspaper popping up on the screen with a headline and that driving the plot is probably going to be just as foreign to people in our grandchildren's generation as the entire concept of little kids walking up and down the streets screaming extra, extra, read all about it. So in some ways, this film is already a major, majorly throwback. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was originally aired on uh, December 6, 1964. So at the time this first showed on television, I would have been alive, but I would not have been aware of what was showing on TV. And yet this particular program at Christmas time, one of my most enduring memories, including the first time I think I ever saw Burl Ives. Uh, Burl Ives, of course, in this case, in the form of a snowman, introducing the viewers presumed to be children to the North Pole. And here, the very first image that I would have seen on uh, TV of Santa in an image uh, designed to appeal to me as a kid. But Santa is a fairly grumpy character in this show, and we're going to work our way through the impression of Santa versus some of the other key characters as we go. Lots of complaining from Santa, lots of, uh, you know, disrespectful attitudes toward his employees and his wife. We'll get there as we go. Uh, Burl Ives, 1964. Would have been, in retrospect, had I been an adult at the time, you know, making other films that were more serious. To me, the, uh, in addition to this, or aside from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the thing I remember most from Burl Ives in this period of time was a movie that he starred in with Rock Hudson called The Spiral Road. Now, I'm not going to presume to say that The Spiral Road is a great film. It's not. But when I was a kid, it left an impression on me, uh, you know, in jungle adventure and voodoo and all sorts of other things. And uh, Burl Ives playing one of the key characters in that. And it's funny getting used to the difference between this character who's breaking out into song without a lot of provocation, even as we speak. And uh, the, you know, kind of cynical doctor character that he played among the missionaries in the movie The Spiral Road. At the time I saw Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, I would not have been able to comprehend whether the song came first or the TV show came first. But just to clear that up, the record reflects that the song came well first, and the inspiration for the show was the song. So this is a series of, of really great animated television produced by um, Rankin and Bass. So uh, taking a song by Johnny Marks, having it written into a story by Romeo Muller, 
uh, and Robert May, and um, really taking that and then applying the claymation and the animation to it. It's really a combination of the two because you've got the animation being layered over the top of the otherwise sort of claymation-driven characters because you have to have that impression of snow and bad weather. And to pull that off, you can't just do everything by you know, moving, moving dolls around, for want of a better word. Jules Bass, one of the producers, and Arthur Rankin, the other one of the producers, did an entire series of these uh, shows aimed at children and based on, you know, essentially famous Christmas songs. Arthur Rankin Jr. being credited as the producer for this one. They would uh, start off their work uh, in the early 1960s with animated cartoon series, but we would probably not notice them until, uh, or notice them enough to say, well, who are those guys? What are their names? Until 1964 with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. They would follow that um, with, you know, in between a series of other shows, uh, shows about Smokey Bear and, and other sort of things. The Little Drummer Boy being the next major Christmas one, 1968. And that one, of course, again, a Christmas Carol being put on the screen. Frosty the Snowman coming one year later in 1969. And the other one that I think I would call my second favorite in 1970, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, the one narrated by Fred Astaire. So we're sort of a bookend in a six, seven-year span where four of the most beloved Christmas specials of all time were, were released. Santa Claus has just shown up in the cave to uh, congratulate Donner, um, Again, a very early 60s, late 50s mentality in terms of, of uh, you know, uh, women not, not necessarily being marginalized, but not necessarily being emphasized in terms of the impressive and, and wonderful thing that has just happened in a child being born. Now, Santa has just seen the glowing nose for the first time, and, and I'm going to describe Santa here as, as a jerk. There's just no two ways around it. And in fact, a quick spoiler alert, if, if you're planning to listen to this with young kids, uh, I'm going to spoil not just the end of this show, but more than just a few other things about the holiday mythology. So this probably isn't a show for young kids to be seeing or hearing with me speaking, even if um, there's no explicit language tag. The Santa I see here is showing up kind of like the CEO of a large corporate organization. Now, it's hard to imagine a CEO uh, breaking into song and doing a dance with a reindeer. But if you think of it, his mentality, instead of being more of a saintly figure or a, a kind mystical elf or, um, you know, a Mother Teresa type, just wanting to make sure that all the kids, you know, have a have a holiday worth celebrating. He shows up here, uh, you know congratulating one of his employees on a job well done, um, giving a quick pep talk about what's coming in the future, uh, and a lot of, you know, almost rap style or reggae style toasting. I am the king of jingling. I mean, if you put these words to, a, to an urban beat and put a little scratch and jams behind it, it could be a rap track. But essentially, Santa comes in here, Lee Iacocca style almost, maybe Jack Welch. It is, after all, originally a GE produced show. And uh, basically, you know, makes it pretty clear that uh, Santa's got his own dress code, his own standards. And anybody who doesn't have the right color hair, the right color nose, uh, doesn't dress for success, isn't going to be a part of his organization going forward. So Santa, uh, in some of the worst ways, has sort of set a standard that I think most corporations today would, would probably not be too fond of if that was the attitude of their CEO where uh, diversity and inclusiveness have been the name of the game um, in most of the major organizations of the world. So now we get the quick montage. Um, yes, even in a children's show, montage, pretty important. Uh, Rudolph and his dad, Donner, learning, uh, playing, learning the ways of the world. And the most important lesson of all is to watch out for the abominable snow monster. One of the fun things about watching the show is to... Uh, See how the different aspect ratios come through um, as the show runs. The, the abominable snow monster changes sizes. In some scenes, he's as large as a mountain range, and in other scenes, he's small enough to fit inside what is an what it's not really an enormous sized cave, of course. So we've met Rudolph, and the next uh, character that we need to meet is we go to this long exterior shot and track in to Santa's castle in the North Pole, is now we're going to meet the elves. And a couple of things about the elves that jump out at me. First off, there is a, a, an effort 
perhaps a laziness, but I think more intentional than that, to make almost all the elves look exactly identical. Later on, we'll see some diverse elves and you know height and, and weight and shape, and we'll see some female elves. But here, you've got this all-male workforce where all the elves are dressed identically, and all the elves pretty much look the same. Except for Hermie, and of course the boss, who towers over the rest of them, both in size and in attitude. Uh, he's got the, uh, he's sporting the beard too, so that must be an exception to Santa's otherwise rigidly strict dress code. And perhaps, uh, Hermie, sporting a bit of a Beatles hairdo, uh, this would not be considered crazy, long, uh, anti-establishment haircut today. But back in 1964, uh, his hair is longer than the Beatles probably were at that point in time. And the Beatles did not get a reputation for being crazy, long-haired rock and roll freaks. When we think of them in the late 60s, when they actually did have hair that was as long as your average woman. No, uh, even hair that was uh, slightly shorter than Hermes here would have been controversial, at least in the part of the Midwest America that I grew up in. So here we go. Another violation of standard work rules and ethics. Uh, um, today, uh, in America today, if I had a, a standard hourly employee that I denied a break to because I was unhappy to the standard of their work and forced them to work unpaid through an otherwise standard break time, I could get myself in a lot of hot water. But uh, not here in the North Pole. North Pole operates on a much more different, uh, a much more aggressive totalitarian type system. And even here, uh, Hermie seems to be... Um, Fearful somewhat of the consequences of quitting, uh, wanting to be a, a dentist, of course. So now we're back to the snowman narrating the show for us in a way that didn't seem very intrusive. Now, as a comparison, um, in Santa Claus is Coming to Town, the Fred Astaire role is even less intrusive. He, uh, he introduces the show, sings us out at the end, um, maybe makes an appearance in the middle. But the snowman is is almost an integral character here. He doesn't have direct dialogue um, face-to-face with Rudolph or any of the other characters that we spend most of our time with. But he seems to know them, and uh, he talks about them in what I would describe as a familiar way. So most people would not necessarily immediately come to the conclusion that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is a musical. I know I would be among those people who would not consider it to be a musical because I think of it first and foremost as being a children's show, and I don't know why you disconnect children's show from musical, why you wouldn't allow those two things to be uh, viewed in the same mind. At least I don't do it. Part of it is because I'm on the record as saying I'm not a huge fan of musicals. And yet here we have a soundtrack that has something like 19 individual songs or songs with reprises and medleys in them. So you've got more than a dozen. And I think anytime you have more than a half dozen actual song and dance numbers, um, there's really no denying that what you're dealing with is a musical. And this um, maybe a musical in the best way and that the songs do seem to come uh, inherently in the show. They're, they're part of the program. Later on, the elves are going to sing. And it's not that they spontaneously break into a song and dance number during breakfast. They're brought in to audition or to perform a song that's just been written for Santa. Uh, that's, a, that's a good way of handling it. And the soliloquy song that Rudolph sang just a minute ago, um, that doesn't bother me either. It does a nice job of thematically connecting Rudolph and Hermie, and when they meet later, we're ready for it. Uh, but it's also short and sweet. It's, it's an aside almost, more than a soliloquy. So now we've come, we've come to that elf practice scene I was talking about. Here's Santa again, looking at his clock. He's got corporate reports to read. He's got filings to do. He's, he's going over the numbers to decide who he needs to lay off if the holiday season isn't as successful. And in comes the head of the elves, who um, has taken time out of the day to uh, perform a song. So first off, you got timpani drum and, and other musical instruments in the background. First time we've seen a lot of elves of different shapes and sizes, and the first time we've seen the female elves, who, just like our first shot of the male elves, look uh, ironically identical to each other. We'll see if that holds up. This is one of those songs where you can understand why Santa would find it um, tedious, repetitive, and annoying. But at least it's a happy song, and uh, I enjoy the fact that we get to see some you know elves with glasses. Why wouldn't you have a dentist at the North Pole if you clearly have some sort of an optometrist at the North Pole? You know, Santa's being, Santa, he's just being a jerk here. He's forced to endure this. You know, Grandma's having a good time. And we got the, the uh, French horn. I love the French horn. Violin. Somebody's standing on top of a glockenspiel playing the notes while he's, <laughs> while he's standing on side, top of the, of the xylophone. The harpist um, trips and falls into a timpani drum. 
Uh, nice showmanship there from the conduct whale, and then he drops his baton. But he makes it look like uh, he plays it like he's been there before, right? So we're still looking for the first indication that there is more than one quote-unquote look to the female elves. So they all have the same basic height, basic shape, basic yeah, blonde hair. Um, when I first saw this, um, you know, in HD a couple of years ago, I thought that that elf was cutting off his ear for a minute there. I, I, I don't know if I ever really noticed that he was cutting off part of his hat. Um, that'd be grounds for dismissal. Um, Santa's probably going to you know, call in the HR department and do something about that. Um, so of course now, you know, mom, like any grandma, you know, if you're always positive, if your grandchildren can never do any wrong, then your grandchildren don't under, don't take your praise seriously because they can't take your criticism of, they can't take the criticism of others, anything else, but seriously, because grandma's always positive. Of course, the reason that the, uh, elf choir didn't sound good is because Hermie's busy practicing being a dentist. Just fixing the doll's teeth. And we have dolls that cry, talk, walk, blink, and run a temperature. <laughs> so you got medical dolls, but huh, you can't have any dental dolls. That would be ridiculous. I got in trouble when I was a kid. Again, probably around the same age that I would have remembered um, seeing the show. So your, your experience with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is that you know, for the first few years of your life, it's on TV and you don't even understand what it is. You have no idea what you're watching, Right. And then later, you, you come to realize that there's this cool show on at Christmas time, and that, that's exciting and wonderful. And then later on, you figure out that it's going to be on, so you can begin to anticipate it. And around the time that I was anticipating this show, um, my little sister, who was a couple years younger than me, and in my opinion, definitely a pest, had one of those dolls that you fed where you could put food in its mouth – and it would go through a tubing system inside the doll's body, and then the doll would, would you know, mess up its diaper. So it was a, a feed-me-and-change-the-diaper kind of doll. And uh, I've gotten, not only did I get in trouble at the time, but I've heard about it for years and years ever since. If you ask my sister about it today, you will hear this story. I guarantee you will hear this story. That I was the kid who figured out that if you actually put the food in the backside of her doll and held it upside down, you could make her doll throw up. And that's exactly what I did. Her doll threw up. The food was green or brownish to begin with, which probably wasn't a probably wasn't the best image, right? And uh, the uh, doll's blonde hair ended up getting permanently stained by the food that I'm sure the designers didn't think would ever get in the doll's hair. The uh, trajectory was always downward, not not upside down, as I did it, which I guess on some level probably made me a bit of a bully. Decided my little sister was a pest. Elected to do something mean in response to that. And here we go with a scene that's actually been a little bit controversial this year. In the last two, three years of a lot of emphasis about anti-bullying behavior, uh, trying to stand up to bullying, trying to circumvent and prevent it, some people have recently suggested that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is a problem show because Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer encourages bullying. I actually disagree with that. I think, if anything, the lesson of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is a reminder that nothing we do in our media, nothing we say, nothing we do, can control people. Uh, some people, especially on the religious right, have this, this notion of hypnotism. If you hear um, Ozzy Osbourne on his first solo album sing a song about how foolish, dangerous, and wrong it is to engage in drinking as a means to uh, deaden the pain of a certain depression or, or anger, I mean, uh, there's a very good policy I've lived my life by as much as I possibly can, and that is never to drink uh, alcohol while angry or depressed. But Ozzy Osbourne, if he sings a song that's the opposite, that instead of saying don't do it, shows how, how tragic and devastatingly wrong it can be to do it. And in the midst of that, uh, people will say, well, uh, if you listen to this song, you'll commit suicide, that there's a cause and effect. Well, there's no cause and effect here. First off, the I'm cute scene, Rudolph flying around, magnificent. Um, his skills are manifestly obvious. Everyone can see it, including the, the coach reindeer, somebody who's actually flown Santa's sleigh before. Santa shows up. He says, this is a great talent. This is somebody who has future in the Christmas delivery of presents business. Everyone can see the skill. It's there to behold. And yet, what happens when Santa, supposedly a high-powered executive here, presented as the CEO who knows how to get things done, um, what's, what's his response to this situation? 
Somebody's different, not the same as everybody else. And despite his unquestionable ability to perform, his unquestionable ability to get the job done, his skills at what matters most to a reindeer working for Santa. You should be ashamed of yourself, Santa says. Why even consider having this be um, a reindeer that could lead my sleigh one day. Not only does he essentially fire Rudolph on the spot for looking different, but he actually acknowledges in the process that it's a pity. He could have been great. Well, how does the, how does the shape and color of his nose make any difference, right? The, the catch here with Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and this one scene is not that it's a bad show because it depicts bullying. It's a good show in that it's a teaching opportunity for parents who watch it. Parents who watch it have an opportunity to say, you see that? That's wrong. Who do you want to be in this scene? Do you want to be Rudolph or do you want to be Fireball? Because if you want to be Fireball, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself, young man or young lady. And frankly, for women, who do you want to be in this scene? Well, it's obvious. For all the things I'm going to say later about certain sexist attitudes, about getting the women folk back to Christmas town and stuff like that, um, Clarice, the uh, reindeer who shows an interest in Rudolph, the girlfriend character, is a very strong female character. She's the one who knows what she wants. She's the one who feels empowered to go get it. And when Rudolph needs an encouraging word more than at any time so far in the plot of this show, she provides it. I mentioned that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is unquestionably a musical. It's built on an existing song, that being the, uh, the title track, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. But the producers of the show approached Johnny Marks and said, um, within these parameters, let's write a few more songs. Let's add some songs to the storytelling. And of all the songs in all of the Rankin-Bass productions, including the existing holiday favorites, you know, like... Uh, you know, Santa Claus is coming to town and the little drummer boy and even the title track of this show beyond any doubt. My favorite is, uh, there's always tomorrow for dreams to come true. And, uh, I remember, I remember this song and being able to put myself in Rudolph's shoes and thinking that would be, that's fantastic. I mean, even if you don't, even if you're uncomfortable with musicals and you don't necessarily like the singing. So the, uh, the addition of, um, a chorus of rabbits and raccoons doesn't really do the trick for you. The message of the song is wonderful. And here's what's funny. The concept of there's always tomorrow for dreams to come true isn't inherently a Christmas track. But on my MP3 player, in my Christmas playlist, I've got this song as a Christmas song because obviously it comes from the soundtrack of one of the most famous Christmas television specials of all time. Another one that I have on my... uh, mp3 player is a track from the santa claus is coming to town number not the fred astaire led song um but instead the one basically sung by mickey rooney and and um what is his name edmund edmund gwen oh wow i feel bad i'm forgetting his name and i'm live here i can't pause to check because i'm i'm recording a show to a soundtrack but uh the man who plays uh, the Winter Warlock, their song, Put One Foot in Front of the Other, is the same sort of uh, misfit moment that we're seeing right here where Hermie and Rudolph meet for the first time. In fact, of all the Rankin-Bass movies, my favorite exchange of dialogue, my favorite conversational moment, is from Santa Claus is Coming to Town, where uh, the Winter Warlock has um, imprisoned Kris Kringle with his tree monsters, and you pause to commercial. I remember as a kid, all the the length of those commercials, the first time you remember seeing Santa Claus is Coming to Town, and Kris Kringle is caught in the clutches of the tree monsters, and the Winter Warlock is there, and you've already been told he's evil, and he's got this big, booming, menacing voice, and all that, and um, you come back from commercial, again, after what seemed like 55 minutes of break between one moment and the show reprising, coming back in to play, Santa Claus offers the Winter Warlock a present, which uh, melts his cold heart, and um, they decide to start you know, collaborating together. The line of dialogue I love the most, though, is the, uh, when, when Chris Kringle is still caught by the, the trees, uh, Winter Warlock says, Never mind the tree monsters. Their bark is worse than their bite. Which probably was a pun I didn't even get the first time I heard it. Um, but uh, a great moment, wonderful delivery of dialogue by, by a menacing character. As we're going to find as we go through here, unless the bad guy in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is Rudolph's dad or Santa Claus himself, 
really the bad guy has to be the abominable snowman, meaning that the um, the key antagonist has no lines of dialogue. You, when you compare that to uh, all the dialogue that the uh, nefarious character in Frosty the Snowman gets, or in the uh, the Burgermeister and the Winter Warlock both, at points in time, being the bad guy in Santa Claus is Coming to Town, it's a very it's a very different thing, right? So here we are with another montage of uh, our two heroes singing a song, Fame and Fortune, probably not thinking that, um, again, when I was watching it, I wouldn't have thought that was a musical moment. It was just a montage. But um, our uh, narrator's back to tell us that our two main characters have gone off on an adventure that's more dangerous than they know. And here's one of these moments we're going to see the abominable snow monster as being much, much bigger than you would imagine him being. Um it appears in, in this moment that uh, we're, yeah, here he is. He's as big as the mountains. <laughs> and earlier, we got a glimpse of his leg that was so tall that um, the reindeer only went up to maybe his ankles. And later on, we're going to see that the reindeer, um, the full-grown reindeer anyway, go up you know, closer to the size of his thighs. That was a commercial break moment as well, not unlike the one in Santa Claus is Coming to Town, where we get a pretty good glimpse of the scary monster. We cut to commercial and... Uh, now we're about to meet for the first time a key character, a character that I think contrasts very positively with Santa Claus in Yukon Cornelius, the greatest prospector in the North, or at least the self-proclaimed greatest prospector in the North. Starts off by offering some good advice. Don't jump face first into the snow. You'll get a frostbite. And then he introduces himself. Now, anyone who's seen the, uh, t- the classic Christmas film, a Christmas story with the little boy wanting his Red Ryder BB gun will understand one of the biggest flaws coming up here in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, a huge uh, mistake, not just in plot element, but also in what you'd communicate to a kid. You're not going to want to lick that axe, you Garn Cornelius. You know, yeah, you're smart enough to know that you can get frostbite if you put your face in the snow. But if you've got a metal axe and you've just thrown it in the air and it's hit the ground and it's got snow and ice on it, you might just get yourself stuck to that sucker. Um, seems like a bad piece of strategy for a prospector. Although it's funny that he's out there uh, sniffing, sniffing what comes up on his on his pickaxe to see if he's you know if he can detect any metallic beyond, beyond the axe itself. I would suppose. So now, uh, the big song number from Burl Ives. It's not that he hasn't sung before and he won't sing again in the show, but uh, Silver and Gold seems to have been a song placed in here, particularly for a Burl Ives moment. And if you look at Christmas collections from Burl Ives as a folk singer, singing tracks specifically for Christmas, Silver and Gold, beyond any doubt, in my mind anyway, is, is the highlight. It's the, the Christmas single from Burl Ives, in the same way that we might think of... Um, Melakaliki Maka for, for Bing Crosby. These songs, of course, been sung by many other people as well, but I associate Silver and Gold with Burl Ives, and I do it you know, really because of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. So um, this perhaps is the... Uh, that, that moment in the show where you sort of explain kind of um, where, where it all comes together. So later on, we're going to get back to Christmastown, we're going to be dealing with decorating Christmas trees as a key you know, moment at the end of the film. Um, and uh, in this case, you know, some birds flew in and finished the work. Later on, it'll be a, a much more different character uh, talking about the transformative power of Christmas. Um, but we'll, we'll get there as we get there. So you got a banjo at the North Pole. And now you've got a prospector um, who's pretty much geared himself up with a sled dog team and the whole nine yards out trying to find his fame and fortune, just like the other two misfits are out finding their fame and fortune. I remember being a little bit annoyed when I first saw this, that this guy was whipping the dogs, um, but he quickly turns it around and demonstrates that he's willing to lead by example, something we haven't seen yet from Santa Claus. Now, one of the most endearing characters in all of the Rankin Bass world is this abominable snowman. Perhaps a little bit more so when he gets a slight costume change, but um, there, when when I think of the characters, if I were to buy a Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer collectible set, I might get by, I wouldn't be happy, but I might get by if Yukon Cornelius wasn't in the package. Um, and you know you're not going to get one without Rudolph, and you're probably not going to get one without Santa. 
But if you tried to put together a collectible set from this particular show and you didn't have the abominable snow monster in the set, you can forget about it. I'm not interested. To me, this is this is the star of the show. Um, and he doesn't have a single line of dialogue. Now, this is, a, a to me, a, a crazy situation. Again, the first time you really see this big difference between this creature that is big enough that he can put his hands over two peaks of a mountain range, now, standing side by side with our heroes, still seems bigger than them, still seems frightening and menacing, but nowhere near as big as we've seen him before. And Yukon Cornelius, now here's a handy man with an axe. Not only can he uh, pick his way through a glacier, but he knows the exact place where he needs to pick his way through the glacier, get the glacier broken free from the rest of the uh, from the rest of the bank there, and uh, and then use the axe as an oar to you know steer himself away. The thing that I think is the most surprising in this scene is how much Yukon Cornelius knows about the abominable snow monster. I mean, there's some things you would know about him just because, you know, he's uh, one of the biggest threats in the North Pole. So you got to know your enemy. You got to know how to keep yourself safe. But where in the world did he come up with a piece of information that the abominable snow monster sinks in water? I mean, is he not really up here prospecting for gold? Is he instead doing reconnaissance? And maybe he's a secret anthropologist who's writing a scientific paper. He looks somewhat like the character in the uh, 1980s adventure film Never Cry Wolf. Not at the beginning when he was clean shaven and doing his research, but at the end of the film when he had almost gone feral there a bit. So now we're back in the cave, um, back in Rudolph's house, which is interestingly uh, only decorated with one set of bells that Santa can use every now and then to show up and dance around and sing a song about how great he is. Um, As the daughter feeling bad, realizing his son's run away. This is man's work. See, got that, got that early, uh, early 60s mentality, but you got this mid-60s mentality here where the women are like, man's work, my butt. I'm going out there too. And um, we don't know that Clarice has actually got any sort of relationship with Rudolph's mom. Clearly, they don't have a uh, a mother-in-law type relationship with each other because they're getting along fine. They're going off on the expedition. So you know, two parties searching for these guys. Notably, though, none of the elves. All right, so we have the land ho moment. Yukon, Cornelius, Hermie, and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer have hit an island, but they've done so with uh, enough fog around that they really can't see anything except a castle in the distance, not Santa's castle, and now a flying lion with a crown on his head. And, of course, now he meets the uh, Jack in the Box, or the Charlie in the Box. And one of my favorite songs from the entire show is coming up because it's uh, not just that it's a it's a fairly catchy number, not a Christmas classic, of course, but a fairly catchy number, but one that is used to drive one heck of a lot of plot. We, we meet and begin a relationship with all the characters that are about to be introduced and then left for most of the rest of the of the show. And at the same time, they get to explain sort of what their predicament is and how they fit in. And uh, we're going to tap into the whole misfit uh, thing before this is all said and done. The other thing I like about this song is that it starts slow, picks up in the middle. Um, so it's got a – again, you, you ask a guy who's written a classic Christmas song like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer to come up with a few more numbers to fill in a, a complete one hour of television entertainment. You never know for sure what you're going to get. He might have mailed it in, but I don't think he did. So here we've got one of those Russian dolls with clown inside clown inside clown with a wind-up mouse in the middle. And uh, some of these misfit toys, you know, I think, boy, King Moon Racer is kind of harsh here. Either that or um, the kids uh, are have a lot to answer for. Um, I'm not sure we ever really figure out what's wrong with this doll. Um, she cries a lot, I suppose. The elephant is the one that drives me nuts. Uh, um, what's wrong with a polka dot elephant? You know, um, the sense of surrealism just wasn't that strong, apparently, in the early 60s when this song was written. And some of these songs, some of these toys that they mentioned in this song are not misfits. They're just broken, <laughs> you know. So let's meet our cast of characters. We've got a talking scooter, the doll. Um, we've got the uh, polka dot elephant. See who else we have here. Because, again, some of these, I think they're just they're not very good toys is the problem. 
See, how would you like to be a spotted elephant? Well, I wouldn't want to be a spotted elephant, but it, it's a good toy. Much better than a choo-choo train with square wheels. Now, a water pistol that shoots jelly, probably going to get you in trouble with mom and dad. Um, so I see that one. Uh, an owl that swims. That's kind of an odd present. But uh, a cowboy who rides an ostrich. You know, I can see making that work. Now, what do you call a boat that doesn't stay afloat? I, I call it trash. Sorry, Mr. Boat. I hate to be harsh, but if you're a boat that can't float, you're not a misfit toy. You're just you're just rubbish, right? So we're singing this positive, uplifting song about being misfits because they're hopeful that this year Christmas will be different. The big finale. And now Rudolph makes the connection. Hey, we're a bunch of misfits, too. Maybe we can stay with you guys. And Charlie... Just like any sort of sergeant-at-arms type, can't make a decision himself. He defers to King Moonracer. When he finds a misfit toy, one that no little boy or little girl loves, he brings it to live on this island. So when you think about it, Santa Claus, always a scary concept to a kid. Because here's somebody whose job it is to break into your house in the middle of the night and give you a bunch of presents. So you have the, the potential level of disappointment of the whole home invasion scenario. So that's there. But also the whether you're going to get the presents you want, whether the presents you want are going to be good enough. So Santa, by giving, also puts in an element of uncertainty. But compare that here to King Moon Racer. King Moon Racer is also breaking in in the dead of night to your house. But what he's doing is stealing the toys you haven't done a good enough job taking care of. And if you were to encounter Santa in the middle of the night, even a Santa in the form of Mr. Grinch, He's probably going to get you a glass of warm milk, pat you on the head, and send you to bed, and then steal your Christmas tree. But in this case, this is a fairly imposing, ferocious lion with a James Earl Jones wannabe type of a voice, and uh, he's coming into your house as an act of judgment against you to take the toys you haven't done a good enough job either taking care of or playing with. Now, I can't say this hasn't had an impact on me. In my mind... um, I wonder if as a little kid I didn't do a better job uh, incorporating as many of my toys as possible into the way that I played just to make sure that King Moonraiser wouldn't have to come and do a repo job on one of them. All right. The, uh, the, the biggest moment in this film, in this show that needs a script doctor, the biggest place where the editor should have stepped up and said, hey, we got a problem here. Rudolph steps out in the middle of the night of this, of this little house to leave his friends behind because he doesn't want to put them in danger. Well, you know what? Shut the damn door, Rudolph. Rudolph, shut the door. It's cold outside, buddy. You're at the North Pole. While you're tiptoeing away quietly so as not to wake him, maybe you ought to worry about the cold of night sneaking in through the door you left open waking everybody up. I think secretly Rudolph wanted to get caught. And probably he still holds a subconscious grudge to this very day that they let him get away. So, the tides in the North Pole, not an area I can speak chapter and verse to, but it's just a lucky break that Rudolph and Hermie rolled in on one tide, and somehow Rudolph was actually able to roll back out on the exact same tide, and somehow find his way back to where he knew where he was and knew where he was going. I don't know that there's a better animal for uh, in the wild, a real animal for representing Christmas, than the polar bear. Certainly better than the deer or the reindeer, in my mind. And when you think about Coca-Cola and some of their marketing adventures and misadventures lately, the polar bear plays a huge role. And just that little snippet there with the uh, Rudolph being allowed to play with the polar bear cubs, but not being allowed to play um, when mom when Mama Bear showed up. Uh, is it because he's from Christmas Town? Is it because he's a reindeer or is it because of his red nose? Uh, the implication is that it's because of his red nose. And we're going to get more of it here when Rudolph shows back up into town. He's still getting the neon nose talk. The reality is he probably would have come up and, and all those months away, he would have come up with a much better snappy retort. Uh, more of a cutting comeback than that. Now here's Santa once again meddling in his employees' personal lives getting up in people's business, you know, again, he, he comes off as somebody who's running a, a, a complex and intricate organization. And yet, uh, here he is because, well, he, now he's got to worry 
with Rudolph's ro- uh, father gone and not returning yet, Santa might not have the uh, reindeer power he needs to get his sleigh off the ground. So now, once again, you have somebody going out to try to save the day. So, Rudolph's dad has gone out to try to rescue him. His mom and Clarice have gone together to try to rescue him. And now Rudolph's gone out to try to rescue them in their effort to rescue him. And then the, the uh, storm of the century hits. And here you can see really well in this scene that a lot of the snowflakes that are falling are not part of the actual animation scheme of the show. They're animated over the top of the film itself, um, especially the ones that are falling upper left to lower right. Um, those aren't real. They're not hitting the reindeer at all. And now Rudolph, in a, in a classic, just sort of classic plot element, shows up just in time to save the girl he loves from the evil menacing beast, who now yet seems to be even a different height than the smaller height than he was earlier when they were running away from Yukon Cornelius. I don't think the anal probe is going to work there, Rudolph. Yeah, it didn't play out well at all. So in this moment, the um, abominable snowman is a bit like a Batman villain. You know, he's only growling and snarling. He doesn't have any lines of dialogue. But in my mind, he is revealing to everyone there the intricate plan he has for their inherent demise, their ultimate demise, by going on and on. And instead of just getting it over with, he's holding them hostage just long enough for our hero to show up. And I suppose that means that Batman and Robin in this scenario would be Yukon Cornelius and Hermie in a a dog-driven Batmobile of sorts. Yukon Cornelius. So which one is more the traditional Santa, heroic Santa figure in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Is it the Santa that we've seen who can't see past Rudolph's physical differences to recognize his ability? Um, Or is it Yukon Cornelius who offers good advice, um, comes in and saves the day, um, offers encouragement, but also in key places, important levels of criticism? Because there's two kinds of encouragement. Encouragement isn't just this notion of self-esteem building and telling everybody good stuff so that they'll feel great about themselves. Sometimes encouragement is telling people what they need to do better. And here in a minute, we're going to hear Yukon Cornelius offer some encouragement to Hermie to do a better job on the imagination part of their intricate plot. So, again, where does Yukon Cornelius get all of this great, great you know, intelligence and surveillance knowledge about the abominable snowman. Um, is it just urban legend that he prefers pig to deer? That he would rather eat pork than any other kind of meat? How does he know all this? Well, whether he got his information in intelligent ways or not, he's clearly right. And he does to the abominable snowman the exact same thing that the snow monster had just done to Rudolph in the previous scene by uh, leveling him with an icicle. Now, at this point, as a kid, all right, dentist, you take it from here. I still had absolutely no idea what the ultimate result of this scene was going to be. Um, is this going to be a kid show where there's a murder committed? Uh, I asked the question rhetorically, but I mean it. We'll get to why I mean it in just a minute. So here's the snow monster. Earlier, he was able to use his physical strength, his height, and his hands to pull an icicle down and crush his enemies. But now because he doesn't have any teeth, he seems to have lost the will to fight back. I guess that's possible. Within the plot of the show, I'm willing to go along with it and humor it and entertain it. So uh, now in a moment of self-identity, a great identity crisis scene in the history of children's television, the snow monster doesn't know who he is anymore without his teeth. He doesn't know what to do. And Yukon Cornelius, uh, willing to sacrifice himself if need be to save the rest takes the snow monster out of the show. He's gone. Oh, he's gone. As a kid, I can remember being both disappointed and happy at the same time. Um, my main emphasis was Rudolph and Clarice and, uh, you know, the, the rest of the family and their safety. But I was just beginning to, you know, you sort of liken this snow monster guy. And now all of a sudden he's completely out of the picture. So, after all that's that's transpired, Santa finally realizes that, well, maybe he was wrong. 
This perhaps distinguishes Santa from a lot of our senators, congressmen, and even, you know, key business leaders and lobbyists. The ability to admit that maybe you're wrong. Um, so he's there. The head of the elves willing to let him open up a dentist's office, which, again, sheer hypocrisy that he hadn't done it sooner. Because clearly he's got some sort of, you know, optometry shop going on there for the elves that can't see as good as they want. So and Hermes already making an appointment. Dad's apologizing. The real apology that Rudolph needs to hear, though, is from Clarissa's dad. If he can pull that apology off, he is in. In big time. But before you have the ability to, to consider that possibility, in comes Yukon Cornelius with a game-changing revelation. Once again, I mean, I guess if you've got that kind of recon, maybe you know that an abominable snow monster can be reformed. The, the star on top of the tree, what a, what a classic moment. And a callback to earlier during the Silver and Gold song. And here, you know, how, how is all this possible? Snow monsters went off, the snow monster went off at the side of the cliff with Yukon Cornelius, but the uh, snow monster bounces. And again, somehow Yukon Cornelius was aware that this was a safe bet. This wasn't a reckless, uh, particularly potentially self-destructive act on his part. He was in good shape. He was, he was uh, comfortable. Now, Santa here, mom complaining that he's too, he's too thin, still being a jerk about the elf song. When you look at him, he's, he's not putting on as much weight as you'd want. Now, this apparently is the same night. It's Christmas Eve. He's reading the, reading the weather forecast, which apparently means that there isn't just bad storm in the North Pole, that there must be bad storms all over the world because Santa can't conceive of how he could deliver a single gift in this situation. But um, he's pretty skinny. What in the world does Mrs. Claus serve for dinner that she can pack 15, 20 pounds of bulk on somebody in just a single meal? Um, I'm pretty sure that whatever she's got, she better keep up there in the North Pole and not bring it down here where blubber creating diets would uh, not be helpful at all. But maybe up there in that forbidding climate could be a matter of life and death. So Santa calls everybody around to pretty much announce Christmas is going to get canceled. I don't know about you, but I've heard this speech before. I remember showing up to work one day and immediately being called into an all-company meeting from the record store in one of our biggest distribution centers to hear the CEO announce that we'd been bought in what was basically a hostile takeover bid and that the likelihood of all of us losing our jobs was much higher than the slim likelihood that any of us could be relocated to uh, several states away to become part of a different company. Um, So this is that same kind of message. Now, the inspiration for Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was the song. And the line of dialogue, uh, Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight, is um, probably the one fixed moment at the the end of the movie where they were saying, okay, this scene's got to happen. Whatever happens in the plot, whatever leads up to it, it's got to bring to a boil at this point where, where Santa has to say that line of dialogue. And your dad, just as big a jerk as Santa, I knew it all along. But, you know, that's consistent with um, dad going out to rescue Rudolph, telling his wife that it's man's work, she has no role to play. Or later, the narrator, the snowman, Sam the snowman, saying that the reason that they had to uh, hurry back to um, the North Pole and not see if their friends, Yukon Cornelius and Hermie, were okay after falling off a cliff was that it was critically important that they get the ladies back to Christmas Town. You know, that sort of that sort of talk. And yet again, you've got this strong female character. She knows what she wants in Clarice. She knows how to get it. I appreciate that about her. So here we have the elves, most of which still have the samey, samey look. I don't believe I've seen a female elf that's a redhead or a brunette. So, again, noteworthy, the attitude toward women being probably... Uh, what it was, and it's less expensive to do claymation filming if you can make a lot of the uh, characters essentially interchangeable. It's like doing a like doing a large battle or uh, a large fight scene with a cast of thousands. Uh, being able to actually use some of the same actors repeatedly and repeatedly, um, having them get you know killed in the battle more than once, uh, it helps you deal with that uh, illusion of a cast of thousands actually being more like hundreds of thousands or even a million people in the time before computer-generated graphics. So here we are. Whatever, whatever Mrs. Claus is shoveling into this guy has bulked him up big time in less than just a couple of hours. It's as if maybe finding out that uh, he had a solution to the weather just maybe relaxed him and he filled right out. So 
Santa for the first time in my mind, actually acting like the Santa we know, you know, um, focused, uh, ready to take care of the kids. Uh, not about him, all about the uh, all about the joy that he's going to bring instead of everything else that went before it. And it always caught me off guard when uh, you expect the show to be over here. Almost you've, you've hit the big finale and um, I think maybe the first few times I saw it, I'd almost forgotten about the Island of Misfit toys. And Rudolph, again, who only found the island in the first place through the random tide of an ice of an ice drift floating around, knows his way back there well enough that he's he's going to be able to navigate uh, in the worst storm of the century. Stop looking that axe, Yukon, um, and uh, and rescue the uh, the the toys on that island. So. I've got me a peppermint mine. I didn't do anything to discuss whether there's a question about the sexual orientation of Hermie. I won't go there. Uh, it just seems like there's a possibility that um, that Hermie's got a different a different future in mind for himself when it comes to long-term intimate happiness than uh, Rudolph probably has with Clarice. You know, and here the... Uh, the negativity of, of the Island of Misfit Toys, uh, the little pity party they've got um, waiting. <laughs> Charlie in the Box in particular being the worst, you know, uh, very much like the uh, the put-upon great-aunt or grandmother who never hears from her grandkids anymore, that sort of that sort of talk. And again, this elephant that should never should have been a misfit toy in the first place. Deliver that elephant to some kid in, in, in Alabama whose family is a University of Alabama fan, where the Crimson Tide is the official um, team name. But their mascot you know, is, an, is an elephant or a red elephant, I, I suppose. But um, there's got to be a, a home for him. Now, unfortunately, Santa's about to really disappoint some kid by uh, dropping into a stocking a boat that doesn't float or uh, an owl that, that swims in water. But, you know. For some, there's got to be a kid somewhere where even a boat that doesn't float is a great toy. I guess if you lived in in the middle of a desert, um, a boat's still a cool toy. You can create an ocean of imagination as long as you you know have the toy itself to to use as a prop. You don't have to make your own out of a paper airplane or you know pretend that a, a, a salad bowl or something is actually your boat. If you have no water, its ability to float's irrelevant, right? So here we go. Uh, last toy in, first toy out, right? And what an interesting delivery system. When I was a kid, I don't remember anything about Santa um, sending toys down into chimneys floating gently to the air by an umbrella. But uh, And you'd think there'd be umbrellas in every house as a result of this, uh, which may be a callback to Miracle on 34th Street. Now it was a cane, not an umbrella. So the credits rolling through here, that's uh, Santa Claus uh, and and one of his key elves, at the end of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, with Rudolph leading the way in what has to be one of the most beloved Christmas programs of all time. I know that it's one that I never miss. So this is an audio commentary of Rudolph uh, the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the Rankin-Bass show from 1964. And now, let's jump into our different drummer. That little clip you just heard is the intro to a song called Disgracing the Family Name by a band called Skafish. And it was the first time I ever heard the music and the voice of our different drummer this week, Jim Skafish. Skafish has described himself as the godfather or the originator of the uh, Chicago punk scene. In 1976, punk was already well underway in England, New York City, and uh, to a degree in Los Angeles. But it was in Chicago where you first began to see this complete anti-establishment approach to um, punk or, or even new wave style rock music. Now, we wouldn't compare Skafish as a punk band to Dead Kennedys or Sex Pistols or anyone else, partly because their musicianship was of a higher quality, more intricate and more involved, but also because they were more along the New York Dolls line in terms of being a 
a group that was going to be more of a gender bender, more of uh, raising questions about um, suburban life and so forth. They weren't looking at the underbelly of society. They were looking into uh, even some of the highest levels uh, of society where you would expect there to not be much of a, uh, of a dark undercurrent and writing songs that either exposed or presumed to expose the dark undercurrent of suburban and um, an upper middle class lifestyle. And uh, he started off with a bang with the song Disgracing the Family Name. I heard it as a single. I didn't pick it up as a 45 because the band was not, they weren't really the reason that I picked up the album I did. I got a two record set in vinyl called IRS Greatest Hits. Might have been Greatest Hits Volumes 1 and 2 or Volumes 2 and 3 from the IRS record label. Now, if you can remember IRS from back in the day, they were the record label that had a, uh, a black and white logo where you know it looked like a, a government agent or a, an untouchable or you know maybe even a, a Dick Tracy type personality, uh, which is an IRS man, uh, Internal Revenue Service man. And that was the logo for their label. But what their label would essentially do is find groups that were on the cutting edge who were a little different. Other record labels had said no to, but that had resonated with a teenage audience that, in my opinion, grew up to maintain a relationship with a lot of these bands. Groups I heard on IRS for the first time included R.E.M., who, of course, went on to a great deal of stardom. But the one I think that stuck with me the most from that um, IRS roster that I heard at that time was Skayfish. I've later found a copy of the first self-titled Skayfish album, which I really enjoyed. Again, thematically, and in some of the musical elements, reminded me of the second Dead Kennedys album, uh, Plastic Surgery Disasters. Uh, both of them have a female vocal introducing the album track, bleeding into the first song, uh, with callbacks and themes throughout. But the one track that I, I picked up that album for was to have an album version of the single I've heard of the song called Disgracing the Family Name. And... What I've learned since was that Skafish has multiple recordings of some of these songs, different 45 releases uh, for different times, different parts of the country or the world, retrospective collections, and that first album from IRS where he didn't just say, well, I've already got that track recorded and I, I like the mix on it, just put this song on that other album. He tended to re-record, re-release, tweak, and adjust, including some songs where the lyrics don't stay, don't stay lock and step the same all the way through. Now, it's a little bit odd to cite Jim Scafish on a Christmas show. I've tried my best not to blaspheme the uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer earlier in this inappropriate conversation. But just the presence of Scafish might do it. Here's the description on the official Scafish website. In February 1976, a tremendously innovative and pioneering artist began shaking things up in the Chicago club scene. Scafish, Jim Scafish, and his band hurled a never-before-heard-or-seen sensibility at an unsuspecting public. Scafish's appearance alone, a huge hooked nose, meaty six-foot-three frame, and the suggestion of breasts that was underscored and emphasized by degradingly gender-bending clothing stunned audiences. The lyrics and music were equally overwhelming. I'm going to play us out instead of the traditional drummer. Played us in with uh, Skafish and a clip from Disgracing the Family Name. I'm going to play us out with a clip from No Liberation Here, which also gives you a sense of the kind of lyrics that he was handing to an audience in Chicago that might have otherwise been expecting traditional blues or uh, proto-modern folk music or even dance as opposed to something like uh, Rub My Nose and Doggy's Duty Today. Please embarrass me so I'll be ashamed. There's no liberation here. There's no liberation anywhere. Skafish wrote songs, including uh, the first song that was released in a retrospective just a couple of years ago called What's This? 1976 to 1979, the band Skafish. track called Executive Exhibitionist, where Skafish sings about somebody who is otherwise uh, you know, captain of industry, uh, owns his own company, a CEO type person, goes to work in a suit and a tie, drives the finest car, so forth and so on who also is a pedophile who shows up at the schoolyard and flashes his privates to children. <laughs> now, at the time, 1976, I guarantee you that my mom would not have accepted the premise of the lyrics of those songs. She probably would have offered the, the uh, exception to say, you know, it's possible that anyone you meet who's a stranger to you could be dangerous. But she would have been much more worried about the bum 
you know, begging outside the mall as being a possible pedophile, then she would have the person who, you know, owned and ran the chain of grocery stores in town. But that's exactly what Skatefish was singing about, connecting the idea of executive and exhibitionist. And of course, this doesn't shock us at all today, because just with what's happened recently in Penn State University, where again, one of those figures that you might not think would be likely to be someone who would be a child abuser, a coach, somebody with a longstanding relationship to a university, uh, aligned with an, a head coach with what it then had been, what at the time had been an impeccable reputation. So Skafish, ahead of his time, maybe by more than 35 years, because in 2011, there's got to still be people in our society who would be offended at the concept of executive exhibitionists, that, that there are certain people in our country who are above reproach because they're the leaders of our capitalist industry. They shouldn't be protested. As we discussed in a, a couple of weeks ago, the people who are uh, opposed to the Occupy movement would rather have corruption than accusations leveled at people who are, you know, on top of our economy, so to speak. Skafish had a different point of view. So what is a guy like Skafish, who, if any of you have seen him before in video, would probably be in a, a music documentary called Erg, A Music War, U-R-G-H, Erg, A Music War. Interesting documentary, uh, including um, early appearance, uh, an early film appearance by XTC, a band that never likes to appear live too much due to the singer's uh, stage fright, or Klaus Nomi doing what I think would be his classic track, Total Eclipse, also included Jim Skafish and a song designed to rile up and anger the religious right, uh, particularly the Catholic religious right, a song called Sign of the Cross. I won't describe the lyrics to you. Trust me. They're sacrilegious. Skafish acknowledges they're sacrilegious. It was written to be sacrilegious from a man who had seen physical, emotional, and perhaps even sexual abuse leveled at classmates by uh, people in the Catholic school that he attended in uh, elementary, junior high, and senior high school. And his sense of the hypocrisy that um, some sins can be forgiven if committed by the church and other sins cannot be forgiven. His outrage is consistent with the outrage I experienced when the Pope imposed a no tolerance policy on consenting adults engaging in homosexual behavior and yet has all kinds of room for tolerance, forgiveness, or even repeat offenses by members of the clergy. This is where Skatefish is coming from. So again, how does this guy connect with Christmas at all? Well, in 2005, on uh, La Bafana Records, Skafish re released an album called Tidings of Comfort and Joy. Now, first off, relax if you've ever found Skafish lyrics offensive. It's an instrumental album. It's actually a jazz piano trio, string bass, drums, and piano, with Skafish being the piano player. And I think I would have doubted prior to the release of this CD if someone had come up to me and said, you know, that Jim Skafish, in addition to being countercultural and undeniably provocative and controversial, was also an incredibly talented, accomplished, and creative musician, I might have doubted it. Because at the time, I couldn't get past his role in this sort of proto-punk band, right? But I can't recommend highly enough the Christmas CD, Tidings of Comfort and Joy by Skafish. <laughs> It's not my favorite Christmas CD. Maybe next year I'll come back with a different um, episode and another different drummer. But it's right up there with his, um, again, truly freeform jazz improvisational versions that are both loving in their arrangements but adventurous in their arrangements of tracks like Joy to the World, The First Noel, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, God Rest You Merry Gents, and The We Three Kings Fusion. From a jazz music perspective, his version of Jingle Bells is right up there with Duke Ellington. And for that and that alone, at this time of recording a Christmas-focused and appropriate conversation, for the very first time, Jim Skafish is a quality, although disturbing, different drummer. Oh, my 
my nose in doggy's duty today. Please embarrass me so I'll be ashamed. Thanks for listening to this inappropriate conversation. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this topic yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. the cutest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Podcast. Anomaly. Something that deviates from what is standard, normal, or expected. An oddity. Peculiarity. Irregularity. Inconsistency. Incongruity. A rarity. I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And we're the socially functional co-hosts of Anomaly, the podcast with a unique perspective, a female perspective on all things geek. Star Trek. Star Wars. Lord of the Rings. Buffy. Firefly. Gaming. Books. Costuming. And general geek topics. The sometimes monthly, but always entertaining, Anomaly Podcast. Anomalypodcast.com. Anomaly